Testing one, two. Testing one, two. I <laughs> uh, check. Okay. How many lows can Rob Low if Rob Low could Rob Lows? <laughs> We're testing the mic. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good tongue twister to start with. That is a good tongue twister. Anyway. That's well, a good one, though. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a hard one. Yeah. Okay. All right, guys. Uh, <laughs> We are back with more shenanigans this week. Um, I'm here today with Eno, Arun, and uh, Shanu. Thanks, guys, for hanging out with me. What's and ner- nerding out about some syncope. Excited. Our topic today. Let's do this. Yep. So, all right, let's just jump right into it. Let's talk about syncope. So the first thing, obviously, want to define the problem. Uh, and I'm very particular when you guys rotate with me uh, to differentiate syncope from, you know, not syncope. And what I mean by that is the actual definition is transient loss of consciousness and it's always due to cerebral hypoperfusion. So, you know, this is someone who passes out and wakes up relatively quickly. Uh, it's always from hypoperfusion to the brain and there's several categories that cause it. The reason I really harp on that when I get like the syncope admission is because, you know, we, we're always taught like, make sure it's not a seizure, make sure it's not a stroke. You know, there's other mimickers and you know, to me, if someone seized and is now confused and postictal, that's not really true syncope. That's a whole different ballgame. Obviously, we should consider the history and are those, you know, concerns, but, you know, true, true syncope, like someone passed out, came to, and you're taking a history from them, there are only a handful of ways you can do that. So, that being said, syncope is actually very common. There's some stats out there that like 40% of adults have syncopized, and it's actually usually younger patients. So, some of you may have syncopized. You don't have to share. Hmm. Well, <laughs> usually sometimes I syncopize while I'm sleeping, but I can't tell. Well, that's not really transient. <laughs> well, but I woke up. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so uh, what the broad categories, right? So you have your neuro uh, syncope, your cardiovascular orthostatic, and then, of course, you're left with some idiopathic and psych disorders. Um, so, Chanel, since I know you love endocrine um <laughs> tell me what on the history tells you they might be a cardiac kind of syncope yeah so the thing with cardiac is it, it it's got like a presentation that that does put itself separate from um neurogenic and so one of the biggest things from history itself is that usually they don't have a prodrome they don't they don't present with you know your typical uh nausea you're sweating all those pre-syncopal type of uh you know, symptoms. And, and, and sometimes um, a key aspect in history that you, that really differentiates cardiac from neurogenic is um, syncope while just, you know, sitting or when, you know, patients are in a supine position, um, which again, isn't related to any positional changes. That's a big one to suggest that it could be a cardiac etiology. Um, other things you want to like look into with, with cardiac or, you know, family history, or, you know, if patients have any personal history of heart disease, these are kind of things that point more towards a um, a cardiac etiology. So um, it has its own distinct presentation as compared to the other etiologies. Yeah. And I kind of think about cardiac as like, you know, either arrhythmia or valvular. So one thing I always do is look back if they've ever had an echo, if there's any history, it's aortic stenosis. It's the big one, right? Like the sad trial. Yeah. So syncope is a presenting sign of uh, aortic stenosis. So I always look back yep. at prior echoes and like you mentioned, prior cardiac history or bad family history is definitely um, 
uh, pertinent here. I yeah. think another thing that uh, we should be asking these patients as well is palpitations. You know, sometimes if it's an arrhythmia that they could feel, they could have palpitations before. Absolutely. And like another thing also, like you sometimes we kind of forget about it under cardiovascular itself, that something like pulmonary embolism, something like a massive pulmonary embolism can cause a, a syncope in patients. And, um, you know, kind of under the line of dangerous syncopal etiologies that come under cardiovascular would be like maybe a dissection too. That could cause syncope. Um, so these are things that we should probably like keep in mind as well when someone think about it. It's probably not always benign. It's probably mm -hmm. something that could be, you know, you got to rule out a dangerous cause too. So I will say, I recently asked the patient if he gets palpitations and he looked at his wife and said, only when my wife's in the room. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know. So I was like, major, major brownie points for I that know. guy. So well done, sir. She's very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> and he takes out the trash. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So some other broadcasters. That's cardiac. Um, tell me for like neuro neurogenic or like a vasovagal. What's uh, yeah. you know I think, pertinent I think, on history? Yeah, there. I think uh, you know in terms of history is what exactly they were doing when uh, when this episode happened. You know, were they using the restroom? Mm -hmm. uh, were they um, you know drawing blood or were they having blood drawn? Mm -hmm. You know, those are kind of some of the things that you know. What exactly were they doing? What the environment they were in? Um, that kind of helps me with you know trying to decide if it's a vasovagal type of uh, type of picture. And if it's happened before, mm -hmm. um, you know, what's have they been in these situations before? Have they've had these similar type of episodes? You know, that's, I think that's what helps with that. So if they're in the bathroom, would you describe that as micturition or uh, think of he? <laughs> <laughs> I have a good one. How, how, do you, how do you feel like if all just, uh, their research is going well? Low, low P value. Low P value, yeah. Oh! <laughs> okay, <I got> Dr. Sonny. <laughs> You're hanging with the, the big puns. Today. I know, guys. I know. <laughs> so, so neurogenic trigger, usually your younger patient, there's going to be some prodrome to it, some noxious stimuli. Mm -hmm. Definitely, I think, you know, for purposes of the boards, at least, if the patient's younger and, and there's no significant cardiac history, they'll tell you the exams are benign, there's like a trigger for it, that's going to be your vasovagal. And then what about orthostatic, which is a major, um, you know, especially the elderly, what's, what do you think about orthostatic? Uh, when you're thinking about orthostatics, you kind of, first of all, want to look at the patients and think about patients who might be at risk for it. So elderly patients that might have, you know, elderly nervous systems that mm -hmm. could have like, you know, risk for orthostasis, people with Parkinson's disease, people who are on medications that could predispose them to having orthostasis, such as beta blockers, mm -hmm. is one of the notorious ones. Um, patients who aren't aging as well, um, like, you know, your low weight patients who might be dehydrated, um, and things that you might see in the history is changes in position, feeling lightheadedness with that, or, you know, feeling lightheaded with, you know, ambulation or things of that nature should be something that things should syncope. Yeah, for sure. It's just, as yeah. we all, as we age, we get some dysautonomia, and you mentioned your Parkinson's, diabetes, things like that that cause neuropathy. Um, I think one piece of history is definitely a change in position. Sometimes it almost sounds exertional, but if a patient stands up, starts walking to the kitchen toward the bathroom, and then they pass out, I still think about orthostate, orthostatic in my differential there because it was soon after mm -hmm. changing positions, so it's yeah. still differential there. Um, so there's obviously a lot of other causes of um, syncope, but uh, as we mentioned, cardiac, neurogenic, and orthostatic are your big three. That's a majority of syncopes, and then a, actually a good portion of syncopes uh, idiopathic, unexplained, and that's fine. Um, so how do we decide if we want to admit this patient or not? Let's start there. So, Shanu, I know you have some thoughts on this. 
Are there any rules yeah. that can help you uh, decide if you should admit a patient or not? Yes, I mean, um, it always goes from, first you look at the patient and see how they look. I mean, are they in acute distress or are they, you know, stable? Um, I think it's kind of a no-brainer. If someone's in acute distress, you want to obviously admit them and make sure they're, you know, stabilized. But when you have a stable patient, that's kind of the tricky part where you, you kind of are on the fence about if you have to admit a patient or not. Um, again, it really depends on the history, and that's, that's kind of where, you know, we have this rule called um, the San Francisco syncope rule. And it has a couple of constituents um, under it. It's, it's basically one is, you know, you admit the patient if it meets one of the following, you know, EKG changes or, you know, if, um, if I believe they're not in sinus rhythm um, or if the patient is dyspneic uh, or if they have a hematocrit of less than 30 or if they have a low blood pressure and um, the number, I think it's around less than 90. Um, and then the last one is if they have a history of heart failure. So if it kind of meets any one of these, um, one or above, uh, that's kind of, you know, an objective way to uh, know that you want to admit the patient. But again, you know, it always depends on, you know, the patient's history too. I mean, their, sorry, their presentation. Um, and, you know, medicine's not always a black and white. There's a lot of gray. So, you know, honestly, it depends on, you know, just how they look too. So, yeah. So, right. So if you get a single point on the San Francisco rule, you get admitted. Yeah. And then right. to your point there, I actually found a, a study about this where they looked at clinical judgment against the San Francisco rule and your clinical judgment, what you think is going on with the patient is the best predictor of admit or not admit. Absolutely. So now that you've decided to admit this patient, there's a lot of workup we can do. We can order echoes, we can CT, you can do EEGs. I mean, there's, you could, you could, there's a lot you can order here, but in this day and age, you gotta, you know, you don't wanna find incidentalomas, right? You don't wanna put patients through unnecessary testing and interventions. So let's kind of walk through a couple of things that you can do and then maybe what you should do for every admission. So I thought, let's start this way. Um, there's an, a really good study, uh, it's from 2009, um, where they looked at uh, something like several hundred syncope admissions, and then they looked at what testing was done, then they calculated the cost of those tests. And at the end, they told you, here's how much money you have to spend to find a single positive test that changed your management. So let's play a game, if you will. How much do you think you have to spend in CT heads to affect management? How many dollars? Again, this is two thousand nine dollars, and in today's economy, you know. <laughs> but two thousand nine dollars, how much do you have to spend on a CT head to find one positive? Ten thousand. And this is Price is Right rules—you can say a dollar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's what he uh, had. Um, probably like you know. $30,000? Yeah, so you guys are guessing high. You're yeah. correct. It's $24,000. I was going to say twenty-five. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> you know, they, in the study, they said that CT heads, uh, you had to order something like 500 CT heads to even find one with an abnormality. So basically, I don't know how to do them. So the cost don't ask me the cost. I'm not an economist, okay? <laughs> I was a bio major. So... <laughs> My point is the CT head, you do not obtain. If they have a focal deficit, they came in for a stroke, by all means, if they hit their head. But if it was just like, uh, I saw something gross and I passed out, don't CT head those people. Yeah, yeah. Um, this one, a little more expensive, an EEG. Mm. 
let's say 50K. 55. Okay, maybe I led you astray. It's $33,000. <laughs> well, I still want to do it. Think about how many dollars you have to spend before you yeah. do order hundreds of EEGs. Because again, true, true syncope, you know, the definition is, is not going to be from a seizure. So an unnecessary test. How many tropes yeah. do you have to order to find uh, how many how many trope dollars? <laughs> I guess I it's like five thousand dollars. It's twenty two thousand dollars. That's cool. oh damn. yeah, you have to hundreds wow. of trope to find one. So that's yeah, that's literally yeah, yeah. exactly. How much money do you have to spend on orthostatic vital signs to find one case that affected management? They charge for those. I mean, listen, you have to pay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of unfair. Thousand but, bucks. but technically, you have to pay someone yeah. to check the vitals. Thousand bucks. You know, send them up. Okay. Five thousand. Thousand. $17. Oh, oh yeah. No, I, I, I knew it was something low. It's got something low. <laughs> and it affected change in like 38% of cases. Nice. Oh, wow. So wow. Wow. basically, my point of all this is not for you to memorize the dollar amounts, but there's a lot of stuff you can order but the only thing that if you, if i were to make an order set for syncope it would be orthostatic vital signs and then everything else based on what the story tells you because yeah. it's a right. cheap and easy test and like you mentioned elderly patients a lot of diuretics a lot of beta blockers you will find a lot of orthostatics um so orthostatics you do on every single patient there's a couple other things so you know an ekg for example telemetry these are on the cheaper side of things. They're less, in, they're not invasive. Those are reasonable to obtain uh, in all patients, mm -hmm. right? Just because it's right. easy to just rule out an arrhythmia, uh, to, you know, keep them on telly and rule out any kind of bradycardia or blocks, which are the common things you would find. So I think that's the reasonable workup. And then based on what the story is telling you, you can order an echo if you think it's valvular or they have yeah. you know, cardiomyopathy history. You can still order a trope in a BNP, but again, based on if the story is telling you there's a concern. Yeah, their presentation, basically. Yeah. Physical exam, too. Mm -hmm. um, that, yeah, maybe, that one's free. Maybe, exactly. You hear some, you hear some <laughs> yeah. murmurs that, uh, you know, patient didn't have before or extremely, you know, in terms of severity, if it's extremely loud, you know, yeah. that can kind of indicate, you know, dictate where you go. So did that study mention I, about how much it costs to go by the patient's Yeah. And, you know, I think it's worth a, mentioning too, like, you know, with orthostatic, you know, like kind of the, the, the value that we have to keep in mind too with orthostatic vital signs, it's usually like, you know, we have a drop of systolic of 20 mm -hmm. uh, millimeters of mercury or, you know, a diastolic of more of, of you know, more than 10 um, within, I think, three minutes of standing. But the thing that I think has changed or probably was never prevalent and we always keep thinking about is heart rate. Heart rate's not a, a it's not a part of this. So, um, you know, we don't always, we don't look at heart rate anymore. It's always just blood pressure. Is there a change of blood pressure from, you know, supine or, you know, sitting to standing? So, um, that's something that we should probably remember. I, I think I'm guilty of that. Cause when I take orthostatics, I'm so, I'm, I'm like, so honed in on the blood pressure and trying not to forget the first number. <laughs> I forget yeah. that yeah. pulse. But you're correct. If the pulse yeah. rises, it's also a sign of dehydration. Yeah. I think the, the heart rate is used more in, um, Pots mm -hmm. syndrome, yeah, exactly. In pots, exactly. Yeah. All right, the, the last syncope fun fact I have for you is if you put someone on telemetry again, we we generally should because, especially if your patient is older, has any kind of cardiomyopathy, you, you might find something. 
Um, but how many days do you think you have to keep someone on telemetry to actually find something? I see. And versus how many days until administration yells at you to discharge your patient? Is you get where I'm going? How about a how about a how about a week? Yeah, you, so you, you need at least four to five days on average <laughs> okay. to actually okay. throw you guys off all I know, over the place all over here. Place. You can't read me. <laughs> this is why I lottery. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I try to lead you guys, but today I thought I would have fun with you. But my point is you can go on telemetry for a couple of days to actually find something. So, you know, just because it's negative doesn't mean there's no arrhythmia going on. And again, based on what the story is, you're especially elderly patients, uh, patients with any kind of structural disease, you might yeah. consider like an outpatient monitor of sorts. And that's, again, case by case kind of basis. So, yeah. And again, you know, obviously, just to give my two cents on this, um, just because I have to, I, um, but like some things that you want to see on EKG or you want to keep a lookout or for, you know, um, things like WPW, that, that basic cardiac thing that would cause syncope would be like, you know, WPW. So you're looking for, you know, things like a Delta wave or, mm -hmm. you know, Hokum would cause like, you know, LVH type of pattern on EKGs or, you know, Brugada. That's, I know it's super rare, but, you know, never rule it out. Um, it's usually that pseudo right bundle branch block, you know, with the saddleback pattern and the V1 to V2. And then, you know, you're, um, you have like your long QTC syndrome. Mm -hmm. So these are things, these are the things that would actually cause syncope when it comes to an arrhythmia basis, you know, or, or bradycardia basically, you know, mm -hmm. uh, bradycardia, but not like an, an AFib with RVR or like a, you know, someone who's tachycardic. These are not typically the ones that would cause, you know, uh, maybe a VFib would cause it, but, you know, right. a normal run of the mill AFib is not something that you, you know, look into for like a cause of syncope. So something to think about. True. Fun fact, I diagnosed WPW as a med student by accident because I just didn't know better. So <laughs> I picked up a random EKG in the resident room. I was like, oh, look, are those delta waves? And the resident was like, let's go through it in an organized, systematic way. And at the end, I was like, so are they delta waves? He's like, yeah, it's delta waves, okay? <laughs> delta waves, yeah. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. I know. All right. Hopefully, you guys are all syncope experts now, uh, ready to pass boards, but more importantly, ready to take care of patients who are admitted. Hold on. Make sure you keep that. <laughs> <laughs>